when someone writes my obituary, they're going to ignore the accident because it won't occur to them that that was the pivotal event in my life. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, the former commissioner of Major League Baseball, Faye Vincent, on the accident that has impacted every single day of his life. I was paralyzed from the sixth or seventh level of the thoracic spine, sort of about the level of my mid-chest, and everything below that was dead. I was paralyzed for months. Imagine the pain of a parent seeing your child, a young man, an athlete, a strong student, lying on his back, unable to move his legs. Think of the strength it took Faye Vincent's mother to deliver this message. And my mother, who was a great woman, said to me, look, your brain is fine. Your body's hurt badly, but there's nothing wrong with your brain. And you ought to be able to construct a very good life centered on your brain, not on your legs. Faye Vincent's mother was right. He proved her right well before he became baseball's commissioner, as you're about to hear. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Schulder. The first episode of the Faye Vincent Sessions. Faye Vincent, first of all, I'm going I'm to spare us a formal introduction. Of course. Although I was thinking about one, you must be tired of people saying, Faye Vincent, former Major League Baseball commissioner, I was thinking, how would I write the New York Times lead to say? The obituary, it's called. Well, interesting you mentioned the obituary, because how would you write your living obituary right now? What would the lead I line I know, about be? 20 years ago, Murray Chass, a writer for the New York Times, called me one morning, and he said, Faye, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm fine. He said, no. He said, are you feeling all right? And I said, yes, I'm feeling fine. He said, you're not sick? And I said, no, I'm not sick. I said, Murray, what's going on? He said, I was just assigned to do your obituary. And I thought, you know, good for the times. They're prepared. And this was a long time ago. So I said, Murray, I'd love to see it. Oh, no. He said, you can't do that. But I said, I'm writing it and I'm working on it. And I just thought I'd find out if there's some reason why the Times is worried about you going right now. I've thought about that because almost anyone approaching my life would say, commissioner of baseball, former commissioner of baseball, as you point out, Michael. The fact is I was in baseball, even if I take the widest period of time from 88 to 92, because I went with Bart before he became commissioner in 89. Bart Giamatti. Bart Giamatti, the former president of Yale. And I stayed till 92. Now, I'm 77 today. I was born in 1938. So that period of time is just a tiny little segment. And yet it's so predominant. It, it would be silly and futile to object to it. The reality of my life has been the accident. I broke my back when I was 18 years old. That was a huge, life-changing, transforming event. It's dominated my life ever since then. So for me, the accident when I was 18 was the central reality. When someone writes my obituary, they're going to ignore the accident because it won't occur to them that that was the pivotal event in my life, but it was. It changed me 
from being a sort of pseudo jock football player in college to being much more intellectual and more interested in the life of the mind. When I told my kids I was coming to see you, and when I told baseball coaches of my kids that I was coming to see you, I said, you don't know why I'm really coming to see him, because I want Faye Vincent, I want you to hear him tell the story of the accident and how it shaped him, because to me, the resilience that that showed, and also the twist of fate, and what it led to is, is really a remarkable story that people can, I think, draw strength from. Before we get to the accident, and I'm, I'm looking over your shoulder, am I seeing your father in one of those pictures? Yeah, my father is in the baseball picture, the Yale baseball picture. Above that is a picture of Skull and Bones, which is the senior society at Yale. It was a group of guys who had, in many cases, fairly strong family lineage coupled with every year the football captain so my father was the football captain at Yale and he got elected to Skull and Bones and, and he came to Yale not through some great lineage am I right oh yeah he was a, tell me tell yeah. me how he got to Yale my father grew up in a little town in northern Connecticut called Torrington Connecticut a manufacturing town he went to high school there. His father was a laborer. They had no money. His mother died when he was 10. My father lived with his father. They had no plumbing. They had no uh, hot water. They had a little two-bedroom flat. My grandfather made 25 bucks a week, working six days a week, tending a boiler in a laundry to keep the heat booming so there'd be hot water for the uh, laundry. They had no money. And my father was a terrific high school athlete at Torrington High School, baseball and football. In those days, Torrington High School had a direct line to the Hotchkiss School, which was a prep school nearby, and to Yale. So before my father, there had been, I'm going to say, 10 very prominent Torrington High School kids almost all Irish, almost all Catholic, almost all poor, who got picked up by Hotchkiss, offered a chance to go to Hotchkiss for nothing, play football and baseball, get tutored so you could pass the academic tests, and then go to Yale. So Hotchkiss came to my father as he was graduating and said, would you like to follow Ducky Pond? Well, Ducky Pond was a Yale legend. He'd come from Torrington, Hotchkiss, Yale. He'd been uh, an All-American running back in 1924 at Yale, and he'd been, was then coaching at Hotchkiss. They knew my father. They knew my father was a hell of an athlete. So here's my father, who was helping his father bring in a few bucks, whatever my father made was relevant to the family fortune because the old, my father's father had no money. And Hodgkin said, if you come with us, you don't have to put up any money. We'll give you enough for everything, but you won't be able to contribute to your father's life and it's gonna to be tough on him. My grandfather, bless his heart, said, look, I can't help you. I can't even give you a dollar. All I can tell you is 
if you can manage it on your own, go right ahead. It's a great opportunity. Had he not gone to Hotchkiss, he would have gone to work in the factory. He then went to Hotchkiss. They had to drop him back two or three years because his academic skills were nowhere near as good as athletic skills. So he spent two or three years at Hotchkiss, finally got into Yale. There's a great story, a trainer at Yale, named Eddie O'Donnell, later wrestling coach and very famous Yale athletic personality, told me one day that he was crossing the green, the big park in the middle of Yale in New Haven. And he said, I saw your father sitting on a bench and he had a suitcase with him. He said, this was when he was a first week or so at Yale. I knew who he was because we all knew that he was the latest of the Hotchkiss kids. And he said, we knew he was a hell of an athlete, especially in football, but he was a very good baseball player. He later was captain of baseball and football at Yale, very unusual. O'Donnell says to my father, aren't you Faye Vincent? And my father said, yes. He said, what are you doing here? What are you sitting on the bench for? And my father said, I'm waiting for the bus. I'm going home. And O'Donnell said, going home? Why are you going home? We just got here. And my father said, I can't keep up at Yale. There are all these kids playing football. They're bigger than I am. They're stronger. He said, I'm overwhelmed. And I want to go home and get a job in the factory. O'Donnell said, kid, don't do that. We all know who you are. He said, trust me, everybody in the football world at Yale knows you're here. And he said, have you had a scrimmage yet? And my father said, no. He said, look, kid, do me a favor. Don't quit now. Why don't you wait until they really put the pads on and scrimmage? He said, if when they scrimmage, you decide you can't compete, go home. He said, Vincent, it's not going to turn out that way. Once they put the pads on and you start throwing your weight around, he said, you're going to be fine. When my father said, we practiced the next day or two. They had a scrimmage. And he said, I realized I could play. He said, all of these guys were big, but they were marshmallows. They, they weren't real athletes. And he said, I pushed them around. And uh, he said, I had no trouble. He said, uh, I became captain of the team. And the rest happened. So I've always thought that that story, it seems to me, epitomizes all of our experiences. We all tend to overvaluate the competition. And so that's this key phrase you just said, that we all tend to overvaluate the competition. When have you overvaluated the competition? At almost every stage. I had the same experience. I went out for freshman football at Williams, now I was big, I was 6'3", I weighed 230 pounds, and I knew I would probably be able to play there. How did I know that? Well, the coach had recruited me and talked me into going to Williams as opposed to Yale. He made an interesting argument. Again, I think these are lessons. I went up there, I was going to Yale, but just before I graduated from prep school, they took me to Williams, along with three or four other kids, to have a look, by the way. It was clearly a football recruiting venture. And the coach said to me, his name was Len Waters, and he knew my father. He said, Vincent, are you going to go to Yale? 
And I said, yes. He said, why are you going to do that? He said, your father's a legend down there. When you go there, you're never going to be able to be as good as he is, no matter how good you are. He's a legend, and he gets better every year, and you're trying to catch up with a legend. You can't do it. He said, come here. He said, aren't you a smart kid? I said, yes. He said, you can go to Yale, to law school, or graduate school, or business, whatever you want to do. Go to Yale for a graduate degree. Come here. Play for me. You'll be a good player here. Maybe you'll play at Yale. Maybe you won't. Yale's a bigger game. He said, for sure, you'll have fun here. You'll make my life a lot easier. And he said, we'd love to have you. Tell your father you're going to go to Yale to graduate school, and he'll be. Now, my father refereed the Amherst Williams football game every year. So my father and the coach at Williams knew one another. So when I told my father what this guy had said, he said, you know, he's not a, that's a, he's a smart fellow. He said, you make up your own mind. He said, I'd love you to go to Yale, but if you choose Williams, fine. Now, what happened is I went to Williams. I was, in fact, captain of the freshman team. We were undefeated. I played. But all the way along, I thought, I'm not as good as my father. I've always... You know, am I really good enough to play? Am I playing because they know the name? Am I playing because the coach likes me? I always wondered if I was making it on my own or whether I was making it because. But then we played Amherst in the final game of the year. They're our big rivals. Freshman football wasn't important at all, but it was important to me and and we were beating the hell out of Amherst. And I remember, as I told you, I was big and I was doing some damage that day and they couldn't block me. And I was having a hell of a time. And we were beating them. Well, what about what position did you play? I played tackle. But again, I was six, two or three and I weighed 230 pounds. And there weren't many guys my size in those days. There were a few. Amherst had a couple. And I made a, I hit some Amherst kid and tackled him. And the coach, the Amherst coach, was right on the sideline by the Amherst bench. And the Amherst coach yelled out, if you don't start blocking that kid, he's going to kill someone. <laughs> and I thought that was the ultimate affirmation that the Amherst coach, I had just waxed his running back. And I thought, I'm not going to forget that because that coach is worried about me. And I kind of like that. Soon after that satisfying moment, just as he was coming into his own, Faye Vincent would have to adjust to a new reality. My roommate locked me in my room. I couldn't break the door down. I went out on the ledge. It was a fourth floor window. It's December 10th, 1956. The ledge was covered with ice. This Wavemaker conversation continues in a moment. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. 
Looking to get the best deals at your favorite stores? CBS Local Circulars has you covered with access to the hottest sales around from electronic stores to baby stores and everything in between. Go to circulars.cbslocal.com today to get great deals from retailers like Target and Macy's. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Faye Vincent, the man best known as the former commissioner of Major League Baseball. I'm going to pick up just before where we left off. I hit some Amherst kid and tackled him, and the coach, the Amherst coach, yelled out, if you don't start blocking that kid, he's going to kill someone. (laughs) And I thought, I'm not going to forget that because that coach is worried about me. And I kind of like that. A month later, my roommate locked me in my room. He and I had gone to Hotchkiss together. He was fooling around. He took the doorknob apart. I couldn't get out. It's two or three in the afternoon. And he left. He said he'd be back. Now, I'm locked in my room, which had a bed and a few chairs in it. And and I took a nap. I went to bed and I thought, screw it, he'll be back. And an hour and I'll, I, I couldn't break the door down. I didn't even try because it opened in. And um, finally I woke up two hours later and I had to take a pee. And I thought, Jesus, what am I gonna do? He hasn't, he hasn't come back. I went out on the ledge. It's December 10th, 1956. And the ledge was covered with ice. I was stupid. I fell and It was a fourth floor window, so I fell four stories. On the way down, I hit a balcony, a steel balcony that was extending out. I don't remember this, but I hit it backwards, so it broke my back, smashed about three inches of vertebrae in my spinal cord, and I hit the ground two floors down from that. And kids came around. One of them was an advisor and he was trained not to touch someone. And so he said, don't touch him, leave him right there. An ambulance came. Had they rolled me over to put me on my back, I would have died instantly. So that fellow saved my life. They put a board under me, they didn't roll me over. They got me to the hospital, they operated on me. I was paralyzed from the sixth or seventh level of the thoracic spine sort of about the level of my mid chest and everything below that was dead. Everything above it was fine. So my arms were fine. They operated on me several times. The damage to the spinal cord, it wasn't broken, but it was compressed and I was paralyzed for months. And I spent four or five months in the hospital. Then I started to walk a little bit, but I'm reading, Michael, as we talk about this, this is a new book on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who at age 39 came down with polio, 1921. It's a book by James Tobin, and it's the story of how he had a similar experience. He woke up one day and he couldn't move his legs. He had polio, and the legs never came back. His arms were fine, so not unlike me, he could use his arms to sort of walk along with canes and they put braces on him. And if he had somebody helping him, usually it was his son, Jimmy, the son would hold him and he could 
sort of shuffle along with the braces. The braces kept his legs rigid and the braces didn't, his legs couldn't collapse. So they were really steel supports that kept his legs rigid, but he could sort of move each leg very awkwardly. He couldn't walk very much. But the book is fascinating to me because the overlap between this great man and my own experience is pretty considerable. One of the things I'm most proud of is I made a decision that it was very difficult to confront the reality that I couldn't play football anymore or baseball because I'd been a jock and I had defined myself as a physical being first. I was in good shape. I could run faster and, and I was big and I, I re-enjoyed that self-definition. But then all of a sudden, I had broken my back, I was paralyzed. And my mother, who was a great woman, said to me, look, your brain is fine. Your body's hurt badly, but there's nothing wrong with your brain. And you ought to be able to construct a very good life centered on your brain, not on your legs. And that was a great insight. She brought me in the hospital a tape of Oscar Levant playing Rhapsody in Blue. I was very depressed thinking about how my life was over at 18. And she just put the music on, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. And it's always had the most incredible experience or effect on me. Whenever I hear it, it's transforming. And it's still one of my favorite pieces of uh, music. And there was no message. The message was, you can listen to Oscar Levant and George Gershwin and Rhapsody in Blue, and that's never going to change. And it's absolutely true. I mean, music has been a very big and sustaining part of my life from that moment forward. But I said to myself, I want to go back to Williams, even though I'm limited, and I want to graduate with my class. I lost the whole freshman year because I fell in December. I hadn't taken any of the final exams for the first semester, so I had no credits. My mother wrote to the college and said, my son has been hurt. Now, they all knew who I was because of football. And the college said, you can't come back as a sophomore with your class because you haven't passed any freshman courses. So no, you have to be a freshman. And my mother said, well, that's not going to work because he needs the support of the guys that played football with him. They're going to help him get around. He's going to need uh, a support organization. It, and it, it has to be that he is a sophomore. Now, that's going to take some ruling. Well, the president of Williams, my mother wrote to him. His name was James Finney Baxter. And he wrote back and said, your son can call himself anything he wants because all we say is by the time he graduates, he has to fulfill all the requirements for graduation. If he wants to call himself a sophomore, that's fine with us. Uh, it makes more sense for him to be a freshman, but under the circumstances, let him be a sophomore. So I came back as a sophomore and I took the normal course load was five courses a semester. I took seven or eight because I had to make up 
for that whole next year. I had three years to do four. And I did it, and I graduated. And the other objective was to graduate Phi Beta Kappa. I thought, if I'm going to do it, let's do it with some academic objective, like I want to be Phi Beta and graduate with academic honors. I can't play football. It was, in some respects, a compensation, but it was also, one can rationalize it, it made me a much broader and wiser and I mean the experience of breaking my back was an awful one can never be rationalized but the transformation from a, a sort of nickel and dime football player into somebody who had a much greater academic and intellectual aspirations and success was probably in some sense a good thing. After graduating from Williams College Phi Beta Kappa in four years, despite the accident and his long hospital stay, Faye Vincent was admitted to Yale Law School, where he was tested in a different way. And I think it's important all the way along for any person, especially a young person, to recognize that failure is the absolutely essential element of life. Everybody is going to fail over and over again. And the question is not, are you going to fail? The question is, what do you learn from it? How do you move? Do you eliminate that failure from happening again? And I think I failed a lot. And one of the things that I look back on is, did I ever do the same thing again? Sometimes I did. And those are really, they grate on me because I say, gee, you would think a smart guy would have figured out you don't do that again. I came from Williams where I was a big shot. I'd been head of everything and president of my fraternity and I was in the senior honor society. I graduated with every honor you can get. I get to Yale Law School and the first year you compete to be on the Yale Law Journal, which is all academic. I had two B-pluses and two C-pluses my first year. If a C-plus had been a B-minus, I would have been on the ill. I missed it by a fraction. That was devastating, but it was a failure that turned... I didn't understand it at the time. I thought my life was over, that if I hadn't made the Yale Law Journal, I would never be a success. I was doomed. Well, I really exaggerated uh, the importance and how did I learn I exaggerated the importance? About 10 years later, no, it's gotta be 20 years later, I'm running Columbia Pictures. And the guy that was first in our class in Yale Law School called me up one day and he said, Faye, I really need your help. He said, I need a job. I said, you need a job? He said, yes. And he said, is there anything you can do? He said, I'm on the fringe of the movie business. He said, you're a big shot. Is there any way you can help me? He said, I'd really like to get into the movie business. And, you know, the light went off. I thought, Jesus, here's this guy that I thought owned the world because he was at the top of the Yale Law School. And he's coming to me for a job. Now, can, I, can I just stop you there? Because did it take you 20 years to realize that you had exaggerated the importance of those couple of C pluses? It came very slowly because when you fail in something like that, the sting is a very bad sting. I mean, that hurt me 
I thought, how could I not have been on the Yale Law Journal? I'm a smart guy. I'm supposed to be on that journal, and I didn't make it. And it really was a painful sting. Um, it went away very slowly. I'm still annoyed at it. I can't believe I got two C pluses and that one of them wasn't a B plus or something. I, I don't know what happened. Faye Vincent graduated from Yale Law School, joined a law firm, focused on corporate finance, and as he puts it, the dull stuff. As we all know, sometimes the dull stuff paves the way for the excitement. I'm then 39 years old, and I was married. I had three children. I had a very nice house in Maryland. I had no debt. In 1978, I made $175,000, which I thought was a lot of money. I mean, I didn't need more than $175,000. I lived very comfortably. But I realized that my ability to become more successful as a lawyer related to how much recognition I had as an expert in the SEC world. So I said to myself, before I go too much farther, I ought to go in the government, get a big job at the SEC, become known as a significant SEC alumnus when I leave, because businessmen will want to hire someone who had been at the SEC and had major credentials, knew his way around. And, and, and for, again, for the general audience, so the Securities and Exchange Commission really oversees. The SEC regulates the whole Wall Street investment stock business. It's a very powerful, well-run, and in my day, admirable federal regulatory agency. I took a pay cut from 175 to 47.5, which is what, and I didn't complain about it, it's what you do. If you're going to work in the government, you're going to take a pay cut, and when you come out, you're going to make it pay off. It was a classic, self-directed, self-motivated, self-interested, uh, strategic move on my part. The I, law- should, I should say, some people complain about that. They call it the revolving door, That's right. and they say it's unhealthy for our society. You don't? No. And the reason is you want to get people with experience to come in the agencies because you want their experience to leaven the judgments of kids who are ready to fire atomic weapons at mice. And you say to yourself, you want a 40-year-old on top of a 25-year-old because the 25-year-old is going to aim this cannon at some minor figure who's doing a minor thing, and you say, the reason we don't want to have 25-year-olds running the country is judgment. For, for the young people in the, in, who are listening to this, one value that you would love to transmit to them that you think is essential, not just to their own success, but to, for the good of the commons, what is that one value? Honesty. But there's really four. One is learning, intelligence, that's one. Two- I have to stop you there. Learning, intelligence. Learning and intelligence. And intelligence. Synonyms. Two, it's important to be curious. Curiosity leads you to know things. Thirdly, it's important to be disciplined, not because learning irregular Greek verbs is important, but because learning anything requires the discipline to work at it and get it done. And fourthly, 
is the all-important question of character, which is honesty, integrity. So those four principles are the principles of any life well-led. Intelligence, curiosity, discipline, and integrity. My worry is that we have become altogether too complacent. We're too willing to accept excuses so that the reason I don't learn irregular Greek verbs is because it's irrelevant. Who cares? You can't get a job because you know irregular Greek verbs. Well, you get a job because you have a task, which is to lose, learn irregular Greek verbs. We give you the challenge. You say, I can do it. And we examine you and we find out, yes, you're very good. Now you're a good Greek student. You can read and write Greek. And although that doesn't lead to a job, the process of A, learning irregular Greek verbs, knowing you can learn irregular Greek verbs, and then doing some other task, which is much more, I mean, running a movie company or running a baseball world or working at the SEC or being a successful lawyer, those are all money-making ventures. And I made a fortune, sort of without even trying, because I was applying sort of fundamental values. In a moment, how Faye Vincent made a fortune, an outcome he attributes in large measure to those four fundamental values that he just laid out, learning and intelligence, discipline, integrity, and curiosity. You're listening to a podcast for the insanely curious Wavemaker Conversations. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Want great deals on products and unique experiences in your neighborhood? Look no further than CBS Local Offers, which brings you the best local deals in your community with everything from enticing restaurants to exciting events. Go to offers.cbslocal.com today. Herbert Allen is a Wall Street mainstay, a major figure. In 1978, he was, if I was 40, he was 38. He was the controlling shareholder of Columbia Pictures, big movie company. He'd been a major director. He put every director on the board. He was the controlling figure of Columbia Pictures. That was a scandal. The head of Columbia Pictures studio was stealing from Cliff Robertson, a main, an actor. The whole company blew up over this. There was a fight over how to manage this crisis. Herbert knew that he was being lied to. He came to see me at the SEC, calls me at eight o'clock one morning. Herbert's up at five. So eight o'clock's lunchtime. I had just gotten to work at the SEC. He said, Faye. Now, I wasn't a close friend of his, but we'd been at Williams together. He said, may I talk to you this morning without committing a crime? A great line. I said, Herbert, I talked to the Jehovah's Witnesses on Saturday morning on my front step. I said, why can't I talk to you? And he said, Faye, do you know that I'm the controlling 
shareholder of Columbia Pictures. I said, yes, I know that, Herbert. I read it in the paper. He said, are you working on the Columbia Pictures investigation? Columbia was under investigation by the SEC. His lawyer had said to him, before you get even to talk to Faye, give him a break. If he's working on Columbia, you got to stop. I said, no, Herbert, but it will get here because I know it's in the building and I'm going to deal with it, but I haven't dealt with it. So the answer is no. He said, good. I'm going to fire the president of the company. I want you to be president. I said, Herbert, you, you took my breath away. I said, come on. I said, I'm not a businessman. I don't even go to the movies. I don't like the movies. I have no interest. And you got the wrong guy. I mean, it's very flattering. He said, I need somebody to clean it up. He said, I need a Mr. Clean. You're it. He said, I'd love to talk to you about it. Don't tell me no until you hear me make the case. Tomorrow morning, he said, pick a hotel. I'll meet you there at 7 o'clock. I need 15 minutes, but let's say it takes a half hour. You can then be at your office by 8. I said, sure. He said, Faye, I don't have the wrong guy. I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to come explain it to you tomorrow. So now I realize I'm no fool. Once someone's called you and you're an executive at the SEC, you've got a lot of conflicts and you've got a lot of ethics. So I called a friend of mine in the general counsel's office named Irving Picard. The reason you're going to know the name Irving Picard, he's the Madoff trustee today. He's the guy cleaning up Madoff. He's a wonderful guy, a good friend, bankruptcy lawyer. And he was working at the SEC. I called Irving. I knew he got in early. I said, Irving, could you come down and see me? I need a lawyer. He said, you need a lawyer? What for? I said, I just had a call from a guy who wants to talk to me about running Columbia Pictures. Jesus Christ, he said, Faye, I'll be right down. He said, it's a big deal. He came down. I said, Irving, I know that I've got to do something. I can't just sit here. I want you to tell me, what does the book say? If you get a call from someone on Wall Street, you're at the SEC, what do I do to make sure that I'm not doing something stupid? He said, I'll tell you. You call the chairman right now and tell him you're sitting here with me. You just hung up with Mr. Allen. I told him, obviously told him this story. I called the chairman. I said, look, I just had a call from Herbert Allen. And I said, Herbert wants to talk to me about running Columbia Pictures. Jesus, Faye. Do you know Herbert Allen? I said, yes. He said, I know him too. He said, he's a serious guy. He said, Faye, this is not a light call, is it? I said, no. He said, uh, what did Allen say? I told him. He said, okay, I approve that. Go see him at 7 o'clock tomorrow. I'll clear my schedule. I'll be here at 8. When you finish with him, come see me because... A, I don't want you to leave, and B, I have a feeling that he's deadly serious and that I can't compete. Mind you, I didn't have a time commitment to spend at the SEC. I met with Herbert, one of the great, con well, it was the transforming conversation of my life. If the accident was the transforming event, 
this conversation that morning with Herbert, we went to some little hotel near the SEC. He said, Faye, let me tell you, he said, I got a mess on my hands. I want to hire you. He said, I want to offer you the job. He said, why you? Because I know you. I know what you are. I know what you can do. He said, I think we need somebody to make good decisions who's straight, who's predictable. He said, the one thing everybody would say about you is, you may be a little dull, but you're totally predictable. You're not going to do something in the middle of the night that I'm going to wake up and be stunned that you have done. He said, you don't do that. So, so let me just use a different word, because when people think of predictable, not that we could anticipate what decisions you'd make, but sensible. Well, predictable in the sense you are not going to do something that's weird, odd, bizarre, unpredictable in the sense of not consistent with what you have been. He said, I'll hire people to run the business underneath you. I want you to sit on top. He said, no one's going to expect you to pull this off once we announce that I'm giving you this job. Everybody's going to say you're going to be a failure. So therefore, the expectations are very low. And he said, the fact that you end up failing is not going to hurt you because nobody's going to think you had a chance to start with. It was a bad decision on my part, and I put the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. It didn't work. Now, he said, that's not the end of the world for you because you're go you can always make a very good living as a lawyer. He said, you're 39 years old. At 39, you got to take some chances. He said, I'll take a chance on you. You take a chance on me. I think it works. Now, this is the telling sentence. He said, Faye, you and I might have some real fun doing this, which was a really wonderful comment. Because for Herbert, sort of giving this chance to me meant he was going to prove that he knew better than sort of the, the Wall Street world what it took to run Columbia Pictures. I told a few friends. It's interesting, Michael. I went to lawyers, guys that were smart. I'm going to say maybe six. I would say three of them said, this is the dumbest goddamn thing I've ever heard. There's no way you should do that. You're a good guy. You're a lawyer. You have no personal color. You're not a vivid personality. You're not a Hollywood type. They're not going to like you. You're not going to like them. This has no chance, and therefore, don't do it. Go back, deal with the SEC. The other three said, look, it doesn't make any sense, and you're right. The odds on doing it are not high. I mean, being successful. But at 40 or 30, how can you go wrong? You have to take a chance on yourself. And then I took over. We ran the company. I ran it for 10 years. I was at Columbia 10 years, 78 to 88. Herbert was one of my great mentors because he taught me a lot. And he taught me that you have to keep your eye on what really is important. And I, for example, would say the stock was up uh, two points today, Herbert. And he'd say, um, I really don't care, Faye. And I'd say, you don't care, he said. I said, well, why is it up two points? And he said many times, there must be more buyers than sellers. He said, I don't know why it's up. And it doesn't matter. We're building value here. We're building assets. 
we're not in this for a short term. This is a long-term game. As long as you are building assets, it doesn't matter what happens this quarter, next quarter. I don't care. All I know is that down the road, we're building a business that is worth a lot more than it appears to be worth. And the stock appreciated 1,900% from 75. So it went up 20 times in the next 10 years. It turned out I ended up making probably $200 million in a 10-year period because of that one breakfast. Now, the tragedy of my career is why is it that I got a job of that magnitude for being known as a straight shooter, as being honest? The tragedy is everybody should have been a can't. In other words, for Herbert to come to the SEC to find me was a great compliment in one sense, but it also, it raises a serious question. Why was I so desirable? And it was because he had a hard time figuring out where he could go for someone he could really trust. Soon after Faye Vincent left Columbia Pictures in the late 1980s, three decades after that four-story fall from the icy ledge outside his dorm room window, Faye Vincent joined Major League Baseball, first as the deputy commissioner under Bart Giamatti, which is when they received a tip that Pete Rose, who holds the record for most career hits, may have been gambling on baseball. We called Rose in. I said to him, look, Mr. Rose, we are here on an important matter. I'm going to ask you a really critical question, and I want you to be very careful. And the place just went dead silent. I said, Mr. Rose, I'm going to ask you about betting on baseball. Have you ever bet on a baseball game in which you're an interested party? Have you ever been involved in betting on baseball in any form? And he looked at me and he said, no, absolutely not. I bet on everything. I bet on the dogs. I bet on football. I bet on basketball. I don't bet on baseball. I'm not that stupid. I'm not that dumb. I would never do that. His denial was strong and, uh, you know, we'd been around. I mean, we thought we could smell a lie. And not any one of us thought that Rose was lying to us. We thought it made no sense for him, A, to a bet on baseball. And then if he did it to lie to us, that would be a really stupid thing. We didn't believe Rose was that stupid. It turns out we were wrong on every count. On the next episode of Wavemaker Conversations, as the current commissioner weighs Pete Rose's request to be reinstated in the sport, Faye Vincent reveals what was going on behind the scenes during the investigation that led to Rose's banishment from baseball. If you like what you're hearing on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you have an iPhone, look for that purple microphone icon. A lot of people don't know it's there. It's right on your screen. Touch it, search Wavemaker, click on the Wavemaker logo, and then click subscribe. It's free. If you're on Android, you can listen on the new CBS Podcast Network, Play It at play.it slash wavemaker. And if you can't get enough of these Wavemaker stories, you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Shoulder. To all the Wavemaker subscribers, thank you for being insanely curious. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.